And if you would, open to Genesis chapter 11, verse 27 is where we'll read and where we'll begin reading and where we'll study Genesis eleven twenty-seven through chapter 12, verse 9, studying together. Genesis eleven twenty-seven. now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Father, your word is true. Your word is firm. Your word is what we need to hear, Father. What we have just read is the only inspired part of our service in this part of the message. Father, I pray that as I feebly seek to explain and to apply this to our lives, Father, that you would work in us. God, that no person would be dependent on the messenger, but God, that we would rely on the message. Because the one who has given the message is faithful and true and powerful and good and holy and eternal and so much more. God, we pray that you would work in us and among us, that you would change us, Father, that you would grow our faith in you, in your Son, Jesus Christ, for the glory and praise of him. Amen. If you're anything like me, and, and I think you all are, you all are human beings. <laughs> You have weeks sometimes where you say, ouch, that week hurt. (laughs) But the Lord is good, and he sees you through weeks, days, moments that hurt because he is faithful. 
We come now to this part of Genesis. This is the turning point in Genesis. And it's not an overstatement to call this the major transition in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. We talked about how Genesis can be broken down into ten generations of ten Toledotes, and we've already gone through the first five. The sixth one is the major turning point in the off-ramp into a different freeway from what we've been on to this point. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, we've been on the freeway of world history. (laughs) For 2,000 years, we've covered world history. Now we're exiting and going on to the ramp to the freeway of redemptive history. And the rest of Genesis now is only going to cover less than 300 years. Abram here is going to cover the next 14 chapters, more chapters than we've seen for the entire world history to this point. And what have we seen so far? We've seen creation by God. We've seen blessing by God. We've seen goodness and provision and guidance and wisdom, but we've seen rebellion and sin and independence from God and violence and only evil continually from mankind. It culminated in a worldwide flood judgment. And then mankind began to recover under, again, the blessings of God, but people weren't living as long. You know, you look at chapter 5 and you see people living to 800, 900 years. Then here in chapter 11, people begin to live 400 years. Their lifespans are cut in half. And then something changes. If you look at chapter 10, verse 25, to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his, na- in his days the earth was divided. And then look at chapter 11, verse 16. Eber had lived 34 years. He fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters, but then in verse 18, Peleg lived 30 years, fathered Ru, and Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years. And now everybody's lives are being cut in half again. After whatever happened when the earth was divided, something changed. People are living much shorter lives, and they continue to decrease in their lives. Where's the promise of chapter 3, verse 15? <laughs> Where's the promise of the serpent head crusher, the one who will come and, and, and will restore things? Where's God's blessing? Where, there's so much judgment. We've seen so many, in just 11 chapters, so much difficulty and brokenness and hardship and cursing for sin. Is God only angry now? Is God only, does God not care about people anymore? In the midst of sin and rightful cursing from God for sins, there's going to come God's blessings. And they will come through one man, Abram, as he responds with faith in God, in the only true living God. God is still the God of blessings. God is still the God of life and of goodness and of life eternal. But those blessings will come through this line, Abram, as he responds to God in faith. This line of Abram becomes the focus for the rest of the Bible what happens with Abram and his line. This line is not going to be the most powerful or impressive. (laughs) It's not going to be the holiest line. We'll see a lot of mistakes and sin, rebellion, even in this line. But through this line will come the serpent head crusher, 
the sin overcomer, the death defeater, the holy one, the living God and man together in one. This is how God begins to work to bring about the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. That's the first and primary thing we need to keep in mind as we, as we now look at this man, Abram. Uh, we're going to be looking at him because this is how God brings about our Savior. Secondly, this is going to be the beginning of that specific nation, the the people group that the Messiah will come from. Abram is the beginning of this nation of Israel that God will make his people. He will be their God. They will be his people. They will live as differently from everyone else in the world as we can imagine. They will receive God's word, his promises, his covenants, even his presence with them. These will be very different people. And his blessings, God's blessings, are to pour out from them to the rest of us, all of the rest of us, to the rest of the world. This is how it begins. And so as we study the life of Abram, as we start here in in the next 14 chapters, and and God changes his name later to Abraham, and we'll sometimes use Abraham and sometimes Abram, those two major points need to be kept in our minds. God is bringing the Messiah, and God is bringing about the nation of Israel to bring about the Messiah. So that not just that nation, but anyone who comes to Jesus by faith will have eternal life. This is how our faith begins. This is how God begins this work of bringing about our Savior. So there's those two primary lessons need to be, need to be in our minds, but there's a third primary lesson in this section that we need to think about as we look at the rest of Abram's life and the rest of the lives of the people throughout the Bible And that is, what does a faith response look like? What does it look like for a person to have faith in this living God when a sinner lives with faith in God? Is it going to look like perfection? Is it going to look, what is it going to look like? What's that going to be um, like in that person's life? It looks like Abram or Abraham. And the reason we know that is because not just is he here in Genesis, but if you will, hold your place here and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, where the Old Testament is showing us what faith looks like. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11 especially, we get a definition. We get to see what it means. We get to see it explained. Old Testament describes it. New Testament defines it. Chapter 11 of Hebrews Uh, This is known as the Hall of Faith, and this was important to the people that the writer of Hebrews wrote to because they were being persecuted for their faith. They were being um, imprisoned. They were being tortured. They were being killed. Their lives were taken from them. Their lands were taken from them. Their families were taken from them because they believed in and professed the name of Jesus. It was important for them to know what faith was and to hold firmly to that faith. So the writer of Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And assurance means confidence and trust. It's a realization of the truth and then rock solid confidence in it. That means I have to hear the truth. I have to believe the truth. That's why faith comes by hearing the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. I've got to hear the truth. I've got to understand the truth, but then it goes beyond that. It means that what I cannot see is as true in my mind and in my heart as it is what I can see, as what's real around me. 
It's the conviction of things not seen. I, I can not see it, but I know it's true. And I know it's as true or even more true than the things that I can see. Whether it's Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in the past, or his work to pray for me and, to, and for you right now, his work to sanctify us right now, or his coming return in the future, past, present, future, whatever it is, I know that it's real. I know that it's true. And all of my confidence, my conviction, my assurance is placed there in the truth of Jesus from his word. And because it's absolutely, unquestionably true, I act on it. I live it out. It influences my life. Several weeks ago, my wife and I and our oldest went skydiving. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Um, it's not for everybody. <laughs> um, we had to believe not only that the parachute would open, not only that the person that we were hitched to <laughs> knew what he or she was doing, but uh, that the equipment would work, that it would hold on to us, because there was only one person with a, par a parachute, and it wasn't me. <laughs> it wasn't any of us. If I have assurance, if I have conviction that that's all going to hold up, that the person that I'm hitched to knows what he's doing, uh, then I can somewhat reluctantly but excitedly jump out of that airplane. <laughs> But if I don't believe any of that, if I'm not fully trusting any of that, then I'm not going to jump out of that airplane at 14,000 feet above the ground. <laughs> I have assurance and conviction. That's why faith without works, James 2.17 says, is dead. Faith that doesn't work is dead. I may not have scientific empirical evidence for my belief. I may not be able to convince you just intellectually of my belief. Or there may be all kinds of evidence. I believe there is all kinds of evidence that creationism is correct, that God did create everything on this planet. Whether I have the scientific evidence or not, I believe it, I know it, and I live out what I know by faith. Faith brings action. It brings verbs. It brings movement and, and life. Look at verse 3 here. This is how we know this. Verse 3 in Hebrews 11, by faith we understand Genesis 1 and 2 that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. We believe God's word about the world, about ourselves, about who he is. It changes our worldview that God placed us here not as accidents but as purposeful beings. It produces an action in the mind and further in the life. Like what? Well, it looks like verse 4. By faith, Abel, here's the verb, offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. It produces action. The next one is Enoch, verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up. You say, well, that was, that's passive. That happened to him. But what it goes on to say is that he was commended as having pleased God. What? A human being pleasing God? How did that happen? Without faith, it is impossible to please God because if you would draw near to God, the writer says, you must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So do you see the, the belief that starts out and then the action that it produces, that it seeks after God? Verse 7, by faith Noah just believed, right? He just, well, God's going to save us from the flood, and I'll just sit here and wait for that to happen. <laughs> no, he's, it's by faith Noah constructed an ark. By faith, verse 8, Abraham obeyed. And then Abraham takes up a quarter of this whole chapter, the hall of faith. Abraham gets like 
a fourth of it, just himself, what, what God does through him. And every person here in this chapter acted by faith. They heard God's word, they believed it, and so they acted it out, that's faith. So I thought of ways for us to remember this, ways for us to learn what faith is so that we can remember what, what does faith look like. I came across some acronyms. Most of them missed the point <laughs> about what faith is. Faith, someone says, is fully anticipating it to happen. Faith is forwarding all issues to heaven. <laughs> faith is forsaking all I trust him. Full assurance in trusting him. Full assurance in the heart. This one's kind of funny. Fear ain't in this house. (laughs) Fact accepted in the heart. Now, those can be helpful. Those can be beneficial to us. They they capture the first part, believing. I've got to believe. I've got to know and believe. But they fall short because they miss the action that that faith, that believing is supposed to produce. It's all believing and then being passive. I just send everything back up to God. I just sit here and I believe, and I just forward it all back to God. No, that's not what he calls us to. I found a few more. Feeling as if there's hope. Feeling as if the thing happened. Feeling afraid I trust him. Those all fall short because they're concentrating on our feelings. And so I made my own. And as we've talked about, I'm not great at naming things, but hopefully this will help us to to remember what faith is. It's in your notes there uh, with blanks. So the blanks are fervent action in the hearing. Fervent action in the hearing. See, that's maybe more helpful for understanding what faith is. Hearing the Word of God Hearing what God has said, I believe it, and then I act on it fervently, a passioned intensity. I'm acting it out. I'm living it out. I believe it so that I do it. I obey. Now, what faith is not is I'm just going to start doing. I'm going to work my way to heaven. I'm going to work my way into pleasing God. I'm going to do a bunch of actions and activity, and I can just tell God, look, here's my list of all the good things that I've done, because God will say, nope, that's not faith. I never knew you. Depart from me. We can't say that faith is just believing in God. I just believe everything you say. I don't do anything you say. I don't listen to anything you have to say. I just believe it, and I sit here and wait, because then God will say, your faith without works was dead. Depart from me, I never knew you. Hearing the word of God, believing the word of God about what he says about the world, about me, about him, it it produces that passion, intensity, that fervent action to do what God has said to do, to obey him, that's faith. Now, when I was coming up with this this week, I I almost had forever acting in the hearing. But see, that kind of gives us a wrong idea because that, that may make us think that we have to be perfect. We always, always and always will be acting. If I have faith, then I'll be perfect, and that's not what God's Word teaches either. That we, we're going we're gonna to strive for that. We're going to work towards that because of our belief, because of our love for God, but we're not going to reach that until He brings us home. Abram, back here in Genesis 12, is going to have a lot of times where you're going to say, really, was he a man of faith? Did he really believe? I mean, look at, the, look at what he did. Look, look what he should have done. Look what he didn't do. Why, why didn't he do this? Why didn't he say that? I mean, our faith, our fervent action in the hearing is not going to be perfect. 
It's not going to produce the action, the obedience that we always want it to. Even in the weeks that we have where we say, ouch, that hurt God, and and we fall down and and then we wallow around in our little self-pity. God's still faithful. God's still there. And when we have faith, He strengthens us. He's there for us. He picks us up. And on we go because of the faithfulness of God. Faith will be the mark of God's people as they hear His Word, as they intensely, passionately, fervently desire to obey. And that will be true in the Old Testament. That will be true in the New Testament. That is true for us today. So with that understanding of faith now, and with the New Testament telling us that Abram is the picture, a picture, one of the pictures of faith, let's look here in Genesis 11 and 12 at what it looks like. And the first part that we're going to look at in in two parts is, number one, in chapter 11, verses 27 to 32, we're going to look at Abram's background. Abram's background. Now, we can't spend a lot of time on these six verses. They're easy enough to understand, so we don't need to, but briefly, Terah has three sons. We learn later that Terah had at least one daughter by a different wife, and that daughter's name was Sarai, whom Abram marries. Haran has a son named Lot and two daughters named Milcah and Iscah, but Haran died. Haran died in the presence of his father. Now, that's the first time that happens in the Scriptures. It's the first time we see that. And, it, and that's an unfathomably difficult thing for us to hear. Any, I have not been through this, but any person that you ever talk to, a, a parent who has lost a child, they will tell you that the most difficult thing, the, the most impossibly painful experience you will ever have as a parent is losing your child. Those who have endured said it's nothing like you can imagine. There is tragedy in these verses. And so often we kind of read through these and, and we skip over uh, tragedy like this because the Bible really specializes in what's called an economy of words. It doesn't spell everything out for us, but it tells us the truth. There is tragedy in this line. Haran's line through Lot will eventually produce two enemy nations of Israel, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Nahor, one of Terah's other sons, takes Milcah, Haran's daughter, to be his wife. It must have been an act of mercy for her because without her father... Or a husband, she would have been in trouble. But that line, Nehor, through Milcah, will produce Rebekah, Isaac's wife, and Leah and Rachel, Jacob's wives. And then after those events, we won't hear from this line anymore at all. But Abram's line is the third, he's the third son here of Terah, and for the moment, his line is dead. Because as verse 30 says, Sarai is barren. So again, as we look into this line, if we're looking for something spectacular, if we want something great in Abram's background that prepares him to be this amazing man of faith in God, we're coming up short. (laughs) You're probably pretty unimpressed at this point. There's tragedy and a father losing his son, a barren wife, a whole lot of unremarkable people. In fact, the names of these people give way to the understanding that these people are steeped in idolatry. The names all all point to the moon worship, the god of the moon that was happening in Ur and Haran. Not only that, but Joshua 24, 2 tells us that Terah served other 
gods. So the bottom line here is that Abram comes from a background of your typical Chaldean idolatrous family, except that they may have taken some lead in the idolatry. Terah may have been a leader even. Abram himself, his name right now means exalted father or my father is exalted. Now, Abram can't be the exalted father because he can't even have any children. So Abram's name points back to his father, the exalted Terah. Terah's name is associated with the moon god. Sarai means princess, and apparently she's a very beautiful woman to look at because later in chapter 12 here, at 65 years old, she's going to be taken from Abram because she's so beautiful. But there's nothing really appealing about this line to God. There's idolatry, there's tragedy, there's brokenness. I mean, what is God going to do with these people? Nobody's really searching for God. They're living a typical God-rejecting life. But in Acts 7, we learn that while Abram even was in Ur, he heard the call of God to go to this land of Canaan. And so for some reason, the whole family had started out, but then they stopped in the land of Haran, And verse 32 says, they stayed there until Terah died. So that's Abram's background. What do we learn from this? What do we we take from this? Well, there are some key lessons for us in these verses. In verses 27 to 30, A, in your notes, God's Word deals with real life. His his Word deals with real life. You know, there's no sugar coating, candy coating. There's nothing that's easy or simple. In fact, I tried to think of one person in the Scriptures that had an easy life where everything went according to plan. I, I, I couldn't think of one. I mean, the closest I could think of was Solomon because he had all the riches and all of the power. He, he had such a great kingdom, yet he ruled with an iron fist so that when he was gone, his whole staff came to his son and said, lighten up on us and we'll serve you. Uh, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes where he struggles to figure out, like, what is life about, God? Why are we here? I can't understand this life. Nothing went right even for Solomon, and he, he was the closest I could think of. God's Word gives us real life. He gives it to us in, in reality, but he, and he gives us also the good examples and the bad examples of how people dealt with that real life. And so we learn about how God leads us through this world before he leads us out of this world into his glory. God leads us through this world before he leads us out of this world in glory. So we study this word for life. We study this for real life. B, in our notes, what we learn next, what a key lesson from here is that God's plan will not be interrupted. God's plan will not be interrupted. God worked through Terah to bring Abram at least halfway to where he was supposed to go. When his father is gone, God completes the mission. Mankind cannot interrupt God's plan. He works through tragedy. He works through difficulty. He works through good times and bad times, but his plan will not stop. And his plan for you, brother, his plan for you, sister, is probably not going to be riches and to become an Olympic athlete and to become the, the healthiest of all people. No, his plan for you, as he has told us in his word, is for you to become more like Jesus. That's his plan. That's what Jesus prayed for you and I. He will not stop. His plan will not be interrupted by you or me or anyone until we are made into the image of Christ. See another 
lesson that we can take away from these verses is that God's work of faith is not dependent on you. It's not dependent on you or me. I hope this is as much of a blessing to you as it is to me that, that I, don't have to, I don't have to try to drum something up within myself for, for God to work and for His work of faith to be in me something that I produce. And with the world, capture this, with the world, you are a helpless collection of DNA, right? And your DNA gets ruined because trauma happens to you, difficulty happens to you, because bad things happen and, and good things somewhat sometimes happen by accident. But there's no hope for you in the world. There's no real answer. There's, well, let's just try to work through it and be as happy as we can. Let's try to have as many experiences as we can in this life because when we're, when we're gone, it's, it's done, it's over. That's the end, that we disappear. That's what the world has for us. But with God, you can have a background like Abram had, And God can work in you to bring faith and to bring about his plan, his plan that will be successful no matter what else happens or doesn't happen. This is a blessing that it's not dependent on my background, on my upbringing, on my DNA, on my experiences, my environment, what happens or doesn't happen. God works through all of that, all of the mess that I am, God works through to bring about his plan. It will not be interrupted It's not dependent on me. So all of redemptive history, and that's all because of Jesus. (laughs) That's all because of Jesus, who God is bringing about even here in Genesis, chapter 11 and 12. All of redemptive history now zeroes in on this middle-aged, that that was middle-aged at this time, (laughs) middle-aged, rich, settled idol worshiper. It's not because of Abraham. It's not because of Abram. But it's because this is the God who blesses. This is the God who brings blessings and life through faith. And it brings others to God through faith. This is why it came to Abram, so that it would flow out to others. We'll look at that in a minute. But God takes messy people. He takes broken people, far from perfect people, transforms them into his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He does what we cannot do. That's the hope of the gospel. So with that background now, let's look at the beginning of Abram's life of faith in the Lord. Look at number two in your notes here. In chapter 12, we see Abram's response to this God. Abram's response. Now the Lord, and that's all capital because this is Yahweh. This is that living God. The Lord said to Abram, go. The same creator, sustainer, blessing God comes to Abram. And we're not told how it comes, but the word of the Lord came to Abram. And Abram knew exactly who it was and understood exactly what he said. He, he knew it wasn't, the, he wasn't Sin, the moon god. It wasn't any of the other gods in the pantheon of the Chaldeans. This is the living God, Yahweh, coming and telling me to go. And the command comes in three parts. Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to where I'll show you. His country was, had been Ur, now it's the Haran. God says, get away from that. Get away from your kindred, the people you know the best, the people that came with you in the move from Ur to Haran, all the people that you know the best, your acquaintances, your family, your friends, and get away from even your father's house, your closest relatives. Leave it all behind. This is the call of God to all people. 
you start out your life living yourself, living in comfort, living what you, in what you like, what you prefer, God says, get away from all of that. God is the one who alone is worthy of our love. Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, every fiber of your being. Will you do that, Abram? Will you do that, brother or sister? <laughs> Would you be willing to leave anyone and everyone else to have Jesus? Jesus said in Matthew 19, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. He said in Matthew 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So God called Abram out of his land, out of his family, out of his own father's house. Who will you choose, Abram? Who, Abram, will you decide to follow and to love, your family or the Lord God? And we've just heard Jesus call similar to that. Who will you choose? Jesus doesn't always call us out of our physical homes. He doesn't say, you know, get away from all of your family and friends all the time. Sometimes he does call us to that. Are you willing to do that? Will you come out from the world to love Jesus? Or will you stay in the world? Will you choose to love this world more than Jesus? That's the question for Abram. That's the question for us. Even if it means not following family traditions, even if it means causing trouble in the family, even if it is hard, will we love him? Will we follow him more? Hebrews 11 says, Abram didn't know exactly where he was going. It says here, God will show him where he's needing to go. He knew it was Canaan. He knew it was the land of Canaan. But where? The command is go. But this command comes with a blessing from God. In fact, it's a super abundant blessing from God. When he says go, he gives blessings to Abram. Now, some people see a seven-fold blessing here. It seems better to see two three-part blessings here. Two three-part blessings, each set up by a command. The first command is to go out, get out from your country, your, your family, even your father's house. When you have obeyed by faith, then verse 2 comes with this first three-part blessing. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Make you into a great nation. We know that that nation was going to be Israel, but Israel has never been considered a great nation. Israel's never been known as, as a powerful world power. They've never been known for their, their richness. They've never been known for cultures and, and for arts and anything that they've produced or accomplished other than the fact that God's word came through them. The only thing they ever produced was what we call the Old Testament. The scriptures. That's why they're a great nation. <laughs> they had God come to them, give them his word, and be among them. That's what made them a great nation. God said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to take you, Abram, out of the nation of Chaldea, the Chaldeans, and I'm going to turn you into a whole nation of people blessed and great because I'm among you. God says, I'm going to bless you. What does that mean? Well, a blessing from one human being to another is a wish for success. I hope the best for you. Bless, bless you. Not when somebody sneezes, but you just, <laughs> when you say, bless you, God bless you. It's a, it's a hope for completion and a positive outcome. 
That's what I'm hoping for when I bless you or when you bless me. But those are wishes and hopes and dreams that a human being can't bring about for another human being. We can't be 100% sure. But when God blesses you, when God says you're going to have hope for completion and a positive outcome, that's what happens. That's what will happen. It's a sure, confident, certain reality. God says, I'm going to make you successful in all that I call you to do. I'm going to bless you. Wow. He says, I'm going to make your name great. Now, this is interesting. Because back at the Tower of Babel, what were the people wanting to do? In chapter 11, verse 4, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. And it's interesting. In the middle of all these names in chapters 10 and 11, we have so many names, but not one name of the people who built the Tower of Babel. (laughs) We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to be great. We want to be known, and we don't know any of them as they attempted to rebel against God. Abram here is not seeking a name for himself. In fact, verse 8, he's going to call upon the name of the Lord. So God says, I'm going to make your name great. This is a blessing of a gift, not a result of works, but it would come through Abram's faith. Those are the first three blessings given by God to Abram, but they will come as Abram believes and obeys. Do what I've told you to do. The next three-part blessing comes to Abram after another command. Now, it's hard to see this command in the ESV. That's what we're using, and the ESV is very good overall. It's a little bit more clear in the New American Standard, the New King James, the King James, if you read those, it's a little bit more clear. It comes at the end of verse 2, where the ESV says, so that you will be a blessing. That, that's actually a command. You will be a blessing. It's not an indicative, just a, a statement. But the ESV does capture that it's dependent on those previous blessings. So what God is saying here to Abram is, go out of this land, get away from your relatives, even your close family, and as you obey me in that faith, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. And then as you obey all of that, and I do all of that for you, that will enable you to be a blessing because you're going to be a blessing for other people. Because of the ways that I'm blessing you, God says to Abram, as you obey in faith, you turn around and be a blessing to other people. You turn those blessings around for others. You're a transmitter of God's blessings to others. These blessings are for you. They're definitely and certainly for you, but then you are to take them and give them to others. They don't end with you. The three-part blessing of, of this, this blessing is that I will bless those who bless you, I will curse the one who dishonors you, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Bless those who bless you. What this is is that all those who help you, Abram, and wish you success will be blessed as well. Because if somebody's going to bless Abram, it's because they believe the same God that Abram believes. They believe that God's told Abram to do these things, and so they're working with God, not against God. And so those who are blessing you, Abram, will be blessed because they're believing what God has said. I will curse the one who dishonors you. Not only will there be a blessing for those who bless, but there's a curse for those who work against him. What stands out here is the singular aspect. Everybody who blesses you will be blessed, but the guy that curses you will be dishonored. It's a singular, this is individual and personal. The one who works against God's plan will be singled out for cursing. 
Now, that doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy and perfect for Abram. We're going to see Abram go through troubles and problems and difficulty. If that wasn't true, then we wouldn't need this, that, everyone, that anyone who curses you will be cursed, will be dishonored. Everything wasn't going to be easy for Abram, but that means that God's plan will happen. It will be successful. It will not be interrupted. God says all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, this is the culmination of everything that has come before all of the families. What does that mean? Does that mean that everybody through Abram is going to be rich? (laughs) Does that mean that everybody through Abram is going to be healthy? We know that that's not what's happened since Abram. Not everybody on the earth has had everything they've ever needed. What does this blessing mean? How does one man bring blessing to every family on the earth? The only way a single man can bring blessings to all of the families on the earth is for this to refer to the Messiah who was to come through Abram. Every family on the earth will be blessed because the Savior will come and he will bless all the families on the earth. All of the blessings will flow through the only man, Jesus, who perfectly responded to God the Father in faith fervent action in the hearing, he is the only one who will bring those blessings of God to us. So as we come to Jesus Christ, as we come to God through Jesus in faith, he will enable us to act out that faith in life. We'll have the blessing of God upon us. And you know what Paul tells us in Ephesians, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We will, we will not be able to live perfectly it will, it will look very imperfect and messy, as it does in Abram, but it will be a continual hearing from God, a continual believing in God, and a continual acting out what he has said because of that passionate intensity to obey, because we love, because we worship. That's what verse 4 says about Abram. Verse 4 says, so Abram went as the Lord told him. That's not a throwaway verse, is it? This is Abram living out his faith. Just as we saw with Noah, he did what God commanded. We saw it over and over. He did just what God said. He did just what God commanded. Abram now does the same. Even though he had a built-in excuse. But God, I'm 75 years old. (laughs) Faith hears and faith moves. As Abram leaves, he doesn't leave everyone behind. His his nephew Lot comes with him. Now, we don't know what the conversation was there. Lot, I'm sorry, i got to leave. No, I'm coming with you. No, God says leave everybody behind. I'm following you. <laughs> we don't know what that, what that conversation looked like. We don't know if Abram said no. We don't know if Abram said, look, I took you as, as my own now, so you're not part of my father's house, you're part of my house. Whatever that conversation looked like, Lot said, I'm coming with you. Uh, another phrase that catches our attention here is, is the people that they acquired. Now, some people think that means servants or slaves, but this is, the word here for people is souls. Usually those, that's not the nice word used for servants. There were souls that, that came along with them. What many people believe, in, and I agree, is that these were people that Abram had told about the living God, that Yahweh, God, and his mission, and his faithfulness. And they said, well, then we're coming with you also. Abram was preaching. He, he was living out his faith, and people were listening and saying, I want to be a part of that. So he was bringing other people with him. Abram was already being a blessing to others by telling them about Yahweh, the Lord, and his blessings and his promises and believing them before they ever came about. That is faith. But brother and sister, 
How is it that he can believe promises about physical land and he can be so excited about it that he tells other people and he brings them along with him and we have much better promises about an eternal glory with God himself and no more sin and no more sorrow and we have these promises of this gospel and this truth and we don't tell anybody about it. Abram responded faithfully and as he as he lived it out, he talked about it and, and, and acted out this faith. Other people came with him. We need to be following Abram's example so that we can bring souls with us to the eternal place of glory. Well, they travel here in chapter 12 some, to some important places, and we won't look at them all this morning. They'll be visited later on by the people of Israel. God's people will come to these places over and over again, these same places. What's important is that verse 6 says the Canaanites were in the land. There are already people here. God says, Abram, go to this land. Abram says, okay, God, I'm here. Now what? There are people here already. What are you going to do? Why have you brought me here? Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. Not to you, Abram, to your offspring. So now Abram could have decided, I don't even know what that means, God. I don't have any offspring. Abram could have decided to just dismiss this and reject it outright. I'm 75 years old. I don't have any offspring. And, and they get this land. I've traveled all this way and I get nothing out of this. He, he could have said, look, even if I had 10 kids and I waited for them to, to grow up and I made warriors out of them, we couldn't defeat the whole land of Canaanites. He could have said, I don't believe it. But Abram heard the word of the Lord. He had that decision to make. He believed and he acted on it. You say, how do you know that? Verse 7, he built there an altar to the Lord. He built there an altar and said, I believe you. I believe you, Yahweh. I believe you, God. I demonstrate that by building an altar here in worship and devotion to you. That's Abram's response to what was not seen, to what was hoped for. He had that assurance and that conviction of what he couldn't see. And then for the rest of his life, the rest of Abram's life, he, as he was in the land, he saw the Canaanites living in the land, enjoying the good land, and Abram not having any part of it. In fact, the only part that he ever had, he had to pay for, and it was a burial plot for his wife. It's the only part he ever actually received because he paid for it, yet he believed. Yet he acted out that belief. Faith takes God at his word and obeys. Don't look around at the people around you enjoying life and, and trying to make the best of this life and trying to do what they can and have as much fun as they can. Don't look around at those people thinking they have it so great and it's so hard as a follower of Jesus. We need to be faithful to the living God who has many more promises and many better promises even than this and every spiritual blessing. Verse 8 says, They continued in the land. He headed south. He encountered Bethel and I. He stayed between them. And he called upon the name of the Lord. That's a technical term. It means he worshiped. He worshiped God. Notice that Abram continually comes back to that. Okay, Lord, I worship. I build an altar here. I build an altar there. I call upon the name of the Lord. I do what he says. This is faith in action. Even to the Negev. The Negev was the the southern part, the desert, the desolate wilderness. He travels through the good land, he travels through the bad land, but he, he believes God's word and he acts out what God has said. So our application, as, as we look at Abram, as we look at who this Lord God is, what do we take from here, what do we learn from this? We learn that faith in the Lord God through the Lord Jesus Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit produces obedience and worship. 
obedience and worship. That's what faith produces in us. How do you use your time? What consumes your energy and your, your time and your money and your resources? And what is it that, that has a hold on your life? Is it, is it trying to figure out how to use all of this for God, to obey him, to worship him? You know, sometimes we say, I don't know if I have very strong faith. I don't, I don't know what my faith looks like. I don't know if it's strong enough. If you want to know the level of your faith, do not look at how many miracles that you think you should be able to do or, or that you have done. Don't look at your miracles. Don't look at how you feel. Your faith is not how you feel. Don't look at how many doctrinal principles and how much theology you know. Faith does not come because you can answer questions in Sunday school. (laughs) If you want to know how strong your faith is, if you want to know what your faith is doing, look at your life and look to to see if there's obedience, to see if there's worship. God says it is impossible for us to please him without faith, without believing him and seeking him. Do you see that in your life? Or do you see just, well, I've believed. I've believed and I'm waiting. I'm doing nothing while I'm waiting for God to do it all. God works in us to produce obedience and worship. But if we're not obeying, if we're not worshiping, you need to ask, do I really have faith? And if you don't have that faith, please don't leave this morning without talking to a pastor here in this room at the information counter. Talk to somebody sitting next to you who knows the Lord, who, who, who's not living perfectly, but is striving to live perfectly in obedience and worship to God because of their love for God, because of the faith, the belief that they have that's lived out. It is impossible to please God without faith. Do you need to repent of a false faith? Or do you need to continue to grow your faith because even though you fail, God never fails. He will see you through the failure. He'll see you through the problems. He'll see you through the consequences to bring about his plan. His plan is for you to look like Jesus who obeyed and worshiped perfectly. Father, we ask that you would produce that in us. God, we are so far from perfect. We don't obey as we should. We don't worship as we should. God, from waking up to going to sleep, from our dreams, from our wishes, from our desires to to our words that we speak. God, everything should be done for you. Lord, when it's not easy, Lord, when things are easy, it's all to be done for you. God, we pray. We pray that you would give us faith. And Father, when you've given us faith, we pray that you would show us how to grow that faith so that we don't just say that we believe and do nothing. God, so that we don't just try to act and do and obey and and legalistically try to achieve what we could never do on our own, but God, because we believe, because you have saved us in our faith, that we act for you, we live for you, we speak for you. God, we know it's difficult in this world. We know it's increasingly difficult. Lord, we're going to be called out, we're going to be singled out. Father, we pray that you would grow our faith so that we'd not depend on ourselves. We'd not depend on this world, but we would depend only on Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, our Lord. Thank you for him. God, what a, what a joy we have in him. What peace we have in him. What strength that is beyond our own strength. God, we praise you. 
We worship you. Help us to worship you all the time. In Jesus' name, amen.